Happy Monday, friends, and welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. Today, we're going to be doing something I've been looking forward to doing ever since I branched off from Lions of Liberty, started this show, which allows me to go into areas beyond politics, do some different stuff, and frankly, just do stuff I want to do. And in this case, this is going to be the first in a series I am calling Cracking Kubrick, where we're looking at the hidden meanings, the esoteric and occult symbolism in the films of Stanley Kubrick. And of course, when I when I dreamed up this idea, I've been fascinated by Stanley Kubrick and his films since I was at least a young teen, maybe earlier, uh, before I even understood a lot of the, the meaning and esoteric nature of things. Uh, but of course, the first person I thought of is who you're going to hear talk about this with me today. That is, of course, the great Jay Dyer. Before we get to that conversation, I got to remind you, you know, normally I would hold the coffee up. I am holding it up for video viewers, but it's empty. It's empty. Why? You can even see the coffee residue. So I want you to look. If you're not watching on video platforms and you want some evidence, go subscribe on YouTube if you like. In fact, I ask you to even if you don't want to watch there because we're on the mission to get to a thousand subs so we can do more with YouTube. But of course, great to support all the various other platforms because not every episode will be on YouTube because just like last week, last week's my conversation with Ole Damagard, not on YouTube for what I think would be obvious reasons. So head over to BitChute, Odyssey, uh, what else? Rumble. There's all sorts of places you can uh, find and subscribe to the show off YouTube as well. Uh, But I want you to head over and do something else while you're browsing the internet. I want you to head to Fox sons.com f-o-x the letter n s-o-n-s.com even if you don't drink coffee i don't know how you survive not drinking coffee because i got to start my day with it but if you don't i bet you have a friend a loved one something like that and if you like this show all i ask is you to do one thing for me actually i have a lot of things i want to ask you to do itunes review become a premium subscriber yada yada i know but right now i'm asking you to do one thing head over to foxandsons.com and get yourself a bag I'm going to get you 18% off just for trying it once. Use discount code MCS, the letter M, the letter C, the letter S. Think Mark Claire show. Use that discount code. Get yourself 18% off the show. Help a sponsor of the show. Help my show. Help yourself. Help a friend or loved one if they're in need of some excellent, fresh, incredibly sourced. Incredibly sourced? I just made that up. But they are sourced and they are incredible. So there you go. Incredibly sourced coffee beans. I think ethically sourced is probably the phrase we're supposed to use. I'm going to say incredibly sourced because Stephen Fox does an incredible job with this business, which he also started to help teach his sons about entrepreneurship. So I think it's just a beautiful thing all around head over to foxandsons.com use discount code mcs for 18 percent off your order that being said it is time now for my breakdown of 2001 a space odyssey with jay dyer my guest today is an author comedian tv host and uh, most pertinent to our discussion today he is the author of the books esoteric hollywood in which he analyzes the esoteric and occult meaning behind popular cinema i'm very pleased to welcome jay dyer jay welcome to my show what's up dude glad to be back uh we had a good chat last time so i'm glad to do a film analysis i think last time we were talking more uh philosophical religious geopolitical topics so this is a nice change of pace i haven't done a movie breakdown with somebody else in a long time yeah back on uh that was back on lions liberty and we were kind of talking about you know some politics and philosophy the the machinations of the elite and stuff like that and that's kind of why i wanted to do well an episode like this breaking down we're going to be breaking down 2001 a space odyssey today which is 
it is, I can say, I think at this point I can safely say it is my favorite movie of all time. Although I, I'm sure you've probably gone through similar stuff. It, it, it kind of hits a little bit differently now than it did when say I was 15 years old and I'm just kind of blown away by how cool it looks without, you know, thinking, thinking about the deeper meaning behind it. Um, but before we dive right into that though, just for people that might not be new to you, for people that might not have seen our discussion last year on Lions Liberty, maybe you can just give a little bit of background uh, on yourself as it pertains to your interest in film and how you got into sort of dissecting film and, and looking into the esoteric meanings and all that. My name is Jay Dyer. I do a lot of dog paintings, as you can see. <laughs> I, I, oh, that's lovely. I, I take dogs and then I uh, stuff them and I put them in poses and paint them. So it's <laughs> pretty much all I do. No, I uh, do a lot of film analysis. I do a lot of um, geopolitical analysis. I do a lot of breakdowns of what's really going on in my perspective. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time and we've kind of added on over the years, more and more topics to discuss. So I started just doing mainly a lot of film stuff and then I added on other interests. And so um, that's what we do. Host the fourth hour of uh, Lord Voldemort uh, every Friday and um, was just on uh, Tim cast. We just shot a bunch of uh, big shows that, that are going to be coming out uh, in the near future. I can't say what they were, but big stuff. So that's what I do. All right. Some top secret projects in the works, it sounds like here. But uh, so before we dive into uh, this film itself, maybe you could just give a little bit of your background, um, either like on how you first saw this film, when this first came into your worldview and just your general interest in the work of Stanley Kubrick. Um, did you get into that that stuff kind of before you started diving and looking into these hidden meetings and, st- and such? I, I got into Kubrick uh, in high school because I had a lot of friends that were like film nerds and you know we all liked uh uh the arts so um i was i was trying to find my i'd have a i have a long analysis of this so i was trying to find it because a lot of notes in that analysis anyway yeah so i mean we all really liked um the arts i wanted to go into acting just because i thought it was fun um i'm not gay i'm actually heterosexual so (laughs) I wasn't in theater because of uh, guys. I was in theater because I actually just liked theater. I thought it was a lot of fun. And um, so we uh, had a bunch of of buddies that were in bands and that kind of stuff. So I was more in like the artsy crowd. And uh, I remember we watched 2001 in high school. I had no idea what this was. was, I had no idea what was going on. (laughs) None of it made any sense to me. So um I just knew it was some sort of like trippy experience. And I remember we were probably smoking weed and, you know, just, I had no idea what it was. it was. I thought at that time, I think it was, Oh, it's just for the experience, right? Like it's not a movie that has some deep meaning. Maybe it's just like, you know, visually kind of like David Lynch movies are supposed to be more about the experience than some uh, coherent, you know, chronological beginning, middle end narrative. So that's kind of what I thought it was. And then many, many years later, after I had, gotten deeper into uh, took, uh you know took film classes and i was taking philosophy classes and trying to get uh, a better understanding of uh the world and you know those domains i i went back and watched the whole kubrick canon uh in my 20s and and i started noticing because i had a you know, better education and things like gnosticism and um you know luciferian worldviews and this kind of stuff and uh to me it started sticking out more and more that kubrick was throughout all of his films kind of lacing in a lot of conspiratorial elements and uh yeah, it's really obvious in certain movies like um you know eyes wide shut but and perhaps even things like lolita or the shining but um 2001 in my view fits into that because if you look into the history of arthur Clark, arthur c Clarke, he's a weird character uh, and by that time i'd read some arthur c Clarke 
And so I kind of had a, <clears throat> a better picture on it. So I went and when I watched it again in my twenties, I wrote a really long essay that was kind of basically a shitty essay at the time. Cause I wasn't very good at writing. And then I went and watched the movie again a few years later and wrote a really long analysis. And that ended up being, I think the, one of the chapters in my first book, and so the more that I learned, the more I was able to understand, you know, that there is a lot of depth in this film. I don't really agree with the the worldview message presented in the film, but I do appreciate, you know, a lot of the achievements uh, in terms of cinema, a lot of the uh, the tech achievements and just a grandiose uh, story. Right. But um, in the end, I don't agree with the message of it, but. Yeah, that's my take on it. It took me basically, you know, many, many years and many, many reviewings of it to figure out what was going on. Yeah, I think that's pretty true with, uh, well, not just Stanley Kubrick movies, maybe just general sci-fi type movies in general, where when you see them when you're younger, they're just cool. You might not have any idea what's going on. And it's only as you maybe get more educated on certain other philosophies or certain other worldviews that you can go back and, and start to see like, okay, this is actually across the board and all not in just this one particular movie, but then across a series of movies and it starts to become more clear, but it's always a little bit of a conflict. Whereas I, I learn more about the meaning behind film. It doesn't make me appreciate it less, but it, I don't even know how to describe it. It does something. So we'll, we'll dive into that more as we, as we go through the movie. Um, so we're kind of start off. We're not going to necessarily go, you know, frame by frame here, but th- this movie is pretty easily divided into a few different sections here. And, um, yeah, I, I probably noticed something more about this movie every every time I watch it, and I did just watch it again uh, this past, past weekend, so it's pretty fresh, but I, I'm pretty sure I go through this every time I watch it, but the way that Kubrick uses extended periods of silence and darkness really stood out to me even more this past time. Uh, it, it feels like that first um, that first note of uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, it, it, it hits that into like, thir- you know, it feels like to me like two minutes of, of blackness. It's probably not that much, but um, I think the first place to start to me is this this opening music that we hear thus spake Zarathustra because there is significance behind exactly who is Zarathustra so maybe you can just start there uh with the music and what it references and we'll, we'll see where it goes from that point so that's a reference to Nietzsche who wrote the book uh thus spake uh, Zarathustra and it also refers to Wagner and hence the Wagner you know film sequence that we hear and that's odd because, you know, that's kind of like usually associated with uh, the tiny mustache man. So it's kind of odd that we would see that in this film. I'm not saying it necessarily uh, means that, but I'm just saying that it's usually associated with that. So I would say that <clears throat> the um, tiny mustache man uh, <laughs> element here ties into the notion of dialectical materialism or dialectical process. And um, that's kind of what Nietzsche, I think, was getting at with Eternal Return is that the nature, the forces of nature are just sort of inherently uh, violent, and they—that's what propels man's evolution in this worldview. So I think that's the reason for the conscious choice of that. And we do have that planetary alignment. And so in my view, that planetary alignment is, um, you know, via Clark. I think there is something esoteric or occult uh, connected with that. Um, I don't know necessarily that he believed in astrology, but I think that the idea here is that these kind of planetary alignments are part of a universe that um, in, in that whole trilogy that, that Clark wrote is basically seeded by a form of advanced alien technological life. 
So uh, I think that what's going on is that the, the monolith is essentially um, guiding human evolution. And we see the alignment because this is the next phase of that of that evolution. And that's going to be when the apes, you know, learn uh, warfare and learn violence. And so, again, it makes sense because those are all uh, Darwinian, Nietzschean um, and in a way kind of esoteric Gnostic themes. Yeah, we see that alignment, the the earth, the sun and the moon. I, I, I think we see it's, it's a different alignment later on, but we see the planetary alignments three different times in the movie. Uh, first here in the beginning, uh, then later on two other times. But each time we see that alignment, it coincides with the appearance of this monolith, the black rectangle, the black square. Uh, there's a lot of different meanings, potential meanings for that. But I'll take uh, whatever you think your 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 interpretation of the significance of the monolith, uh, not just what it does in terms of shaping the course of man's evolution. But why do you think that particular shape, that particular structure was used to represent the, the te- te- technology, the technology behind that? You talking about the uh, the way it turns out to look like a pyramid? Yeah, that way. Well, yeah, when it first appears as the rectangle, but that yeah, you could, that that's part of it oh, as I well. For you sure. meant the, so like when the. Uh, when you see the the monolith, right, this from the cameras down at the bottom, and it looks like a pyramid mm-hmm. with a no capstone and a light at the top. I think that's an intentional sort of you know Luciferian image. Is that is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking? I was about just talking about the general appearance of the monolith, but that that's something that I took from your oh, that, that, but yeah, the, yeah. the thing so, with the pyramid so, is something I took from your book. Like I I had never thought of that on my own, but it, that that is part of your your analysis of it as well. So you can dive into that. Too. Yeah, and I think you know Kubert really liked to have those weird angles and play with that. He does the same kind of thing in. Uh, shining where he'll play Mm -hmm. with the you know tilting the the angle of the camera to make things look kind of bent and turned into different geometric formations and i know that we know he has that obsession with that sort of geometric forms and all that because of the the maze and the shining and because of the diamonds that appear you know later on in 2001 but the year right you're right the, the basic shape of the monolith i think is supposed to be a tv and i read in <clears throat> well, it's a screen, it's, and I read in, in uh, um, that in the original screenplay, the the Clark uh, idea was to have uh, images on the screen, and so the idea would be that this sort of unknown, unexplained technology that just sort of appears, and because it's just simply the unknown, it it's what propels, or it's like the catalyst to you know bring about the next phase of evolution. So um, that's what I think what is supposed to be. But of course, there's a lot of other interpretations. Uh, you know, we did a uh, season of a TV show, and one of those episodes was with Jay Widener, and he he thinks that it's it represents like the movie screen itself, mm-hmm. right? So like when it turns, and and <clears throat> if you turn it over, it's supposed to look like a movie screen, which entirely is entirely possible too. Um, but it also has this idea of just being a sort of black, it's a, f- a form of a black cube. You know, we think of Saturn and the Saturnalian cube and a lot of esoteric traditions. So it could, it could have a reference to all those things, but um, yeah, I think it's supposed to be the catalyst for the next phase in evolutionary development. Right. And we see that in the, in that first scene again, it, it, the scene lasts, like I always remember it as being two minutes long. And then you know, I rewatch the movie and I always think to myself, Oh, this is a lot longer than I thought. It's like a 20 minute extended scene of yeah. meeting all these, all these apes in Africa. Um, and them kind of gets getting in a frenzy with the monolith and they, they kind of show the apes sort of dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, they're dealing with, you know, 
cougars, jaguars, whatever, whatever lion type type creatures are out there eating them, dealing with water shortage, dealing with warring tribes. Uh, it's only when this monolith appears and the one sort of alpha alpha ape goes and touches it that he seems to be in, sort of imbued with this extra knowledge. And it's not long after that where we see him picking up the bone, smashing the bone, and it's 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 almost like the the monolith gave him the knowledge of oh hey you can pick things up and and hurt people with them and that might help your tribe. So what's your just what's your thought about how just the the purpose behind the monolith intentionally giving these apes is it is it about technology that it's that it's sort of guiding them on or is it more about a, a spiritual change in introducing the concept of violence? It's both, right? It's like it's it's dominance through tech and violence and tech can give you that dom uh, that that upper hand that uh um survival of the fittest right so that's what we, we see immediately with the alien or with the with the uh the monkeys is that you know it's purely primal you know survival of the fittest and we immediately begin to see the uh, alpha you know battle there between the between the two and this then splits the the company of the monkeys and we have like a whole new i'm just going from memory from that scene like don't isn't there like a now a new alpha once he kills the other alpha and he kind of has dominance right and then he celebrates and he throws the the bone up and the bone you know becomes the the spaceship so we jump ahead several thousand years and i think that in that in that worldview that's the idea is that violence is part of the necessary dialectical process to propel the species to the next phase. And that's part of the justification, I think, for the worldview of people who have a lot of these illuminist and Gnostic types of worldviews is that um, nature itself has within it the principle of death and death is a natural part of the process of propelling us to the next phase. And that's, you know, that's pretty fundamental to Darwinism. And I think that Nietzsche and company, right, that's, that's their whole thing. So, um, that's why Nietzsche was so important. And that's that's what I understand this to be. And something else I, I noticed rewatching this this weekend, um, that that sort of alpha ape that that gets the bone and becomes the violent one. He starts his own sort of like, I don't know if it was already his tribe, but his whole tribe of apes. They that's all, what I mean. yeah, yeah, they all have they all have the bones. But what I noticed this weekend watching is when when the bone, the ones with the bones come and confront the the dumb apes that didn't get the monolith, uh, you know, upgrade or whatever, whatever. <laughs> right. Those those other apes with the bones that did touch the monolith, they're standing almost more. They're standing more straight up. At, whereas the other ones are clearly more hunched over, which I had never noticed before. Um, so I, I do wonder if there's even a sort of a, a not, not so hidden, I guess, message there just about evolution and Darwinianism included in the, in the choice of sort of making those bone apes, the violent apes stand up straighter. I don't know if you ever noticed that. No, I had not. That's really cool. And uh, <clears throat> I do think there's uh, yeah, I, I remember the, uh, I was looking back at my notes. The, the reason that it shows the pyramid uncapped is that it's the, the work is not complete. Right. So the, the great work is the perfecting of man in this hermetic alchemical tradition. So, in this notion, you have to evolve, and it may take millions of years, it may take 10,000 years, who knows, right? You have to evolve to the stage where man can, through tech, achieve immortality or achieve godhood or achieve the transcending of the physical limitations. And so that's why I think at the beginning, we see the pyramid uncapped. I just, I wanted to bring that back because I was trying to remember why it was it was uncapped. But then I was like, hey, yeah, okay, so it's that, it's that great work process. And... Um, yeah, I think you're right that the the group that's going to go into the future, the next phase, is the one that has that the advantage. And uh, I had not noticed that that they were standing more upright, but it makes perfect sense. That's a great point. Yeah, and like you said, so he throws the bone in the air, and that 
sort of transmorphs uh, visually into the the spaceships and the sort of. Can you comment on the the thing that I didn't really know much about, but I, I'd heard I'd seen you mention it in your own commentary. Sort sort of when we see and we see this a few times throughout the film, but when we first see these these spaceships that are sort of orbiting the moon, these space stations, whatever they may be, we see this sort of turning wheel, and that is a sort of a reference to a a symbol that we see in Buddhism and some other sort of ancient uh, cultures. Yeah, this is used in a lot of places, so it's kind of hard to, to pick out exactly what the white the, the wheel might be referencing. But we do see the wheel that comes up uh, not just in like Buddhism and Hinduism, and, which is like the cycle of life and like all the universe is like this never ending wheel that uh, recycles you. So it's like eternal return. That's may, would make sense too because that's Nietzsche and Nietzsche taught the doctrine of eternal return. Uh, and so there's that, but there's also like the idea of Ezekiel's wheels, which I don't think it's an actual like spaceship. I think it's supposed to be an angelic being, but a lot of people have interpreted that to be, uh, you know, some sort of spaceship or something like that. So it could have that it's a big ancient too. aliens call back that one. Yeah, exactly. But here the ancient aliens are like, they're not aliens, they're advanced AI, right? Which is, which is able to, if I recall, right, which is able to, I'm talking about when you read. 2010 and when and then in 3001 right. it's like it's not aliens it's just ai <clears throat> that's really advanced and that's how star child right because at the end he's going to become the god the god child right so that's going to be apotheosis and so yeah that's what i that's what i think on that yeah, so once we're sort of introduced into this, this we kind of get the direct line from the violence and the bone straight to spaceships and conquering that sort of plane, if you will. And uh, we learn that there is, uh, which is really another thing that sort of hits harder watching it now after the last couple of years, especially, is that they've introduced a virus, uh, a virus cover story uh, just to cover up for the fact that they found this monolith on the moon. Um, but everyone else, I, I found it kind of interesting. I forget the character's name, but, you know, he's chatting with these other people and they're kind of saying, you know, hey, we, we, we heard there might be a virus or something. And he's just kind of like. No, no, we can't really. I can't really talk about it. Which he he basically says it in a way that's confirming it. But in in doing so, he's actually just advancing the cover story because the whole point is to make it seem like they're hiding a virus when they're act, or hiding a viral outbreak when really they're using that story to cover for this other thing that they found, which they don't want to tell people about. Um, did that did that hit any did that hit any harder for you after just uh, after seeing the last couple of years and seeing um, this sort of play out in its own way? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean I, you know I don't know I, I'm not I know you're not saying this but there, it's not necessarily a direct connect between yeah, yeah. like this and like Cooper. <laughs> predicted code right right <laughs> uh but um it shows it's kind of in the playbook in, in a sense though i guess yeah exactly the, the cover stories are always in the playbook that's a great point and same thing that was it was going on in 2000 or in uh uh spielberg's um close encounters uh right the third i think time et where too there was like a there's a whole like a, oh yeah there's a, bi a bio weapon yeah. cover story for the you know so-called alien invasion or whatever <clears throat> And they even fake the alien or the uh, the bioweapon release, right? Where they have the dead cows laid right, out right, in yep. uh, close encounters. So, yeah, I think uh, we do see that idea of the government putting forth plausible counter narratives uh, that are cover stories. And Kubrick would know that because, uh, I mean, I don't know that Kubrick necessarily filmed the moon landing or anything like that. I mean, that's a lot of speculation. But, but, but because on this film he did <clears throat> consult with NASA, I think he did have an understanding of how things work on, you know, in, in terms of the real power structure, the shadow government, et cetera. So he knows that they have the ability to do that. And Clark uh, being one of those people who 
in some degree, I don't know how far on in terms of the inner party circle he was, but he was definitely to a degree an insider. You know, Clark was hanging out with people like Crowley and he was hanging out with all the Royal Society elites and was himself pretty, uh, pretty nefarious of a character. <clears throat> so uh, in my view, also, there's probably some seeding of the notion that human human beings are seeded by uh, some other foreign kind of space-based entity like in this it's going to be ai but it also might relate to something like panspermia I, I mean i know that in this movie it's not panspermia but it might be a form of panspermia because you know we don't know well w when star child is is created in the original story he nukes earth right mm -hmm. so there's like this depopulation narrative because it, it, everything needs to start over and so there might be a seeding, uh, a, a panspermia seeding uh, when everything starts over, which is that eternal return. So I think that when we get to Star Child and we get a new genesis at the end, I'm not trying to jump too far to the end, but you have to understand the end to know what's going on. This is a this is a spoiler filled review. So if anyone hasn't seen the not movie before the, yeah. watching this, that's their own problem. You know, if you haven't seen the movie, you should probably just stop this right now and go watch it and then <laughs> and then return. Well, I'm assuming everybody in your audience probably. I would think so. Them. I would yeah. think so at this point. But um, yes, I mean that. Yeah, they, the the um, the. That's not, am I bothering you that I'm talking about the ending? Oh no, not at all. No, no, no. I'm just, just because, just because it, it it's the notion of eternal return because right. the universe starts over. Right, that's the point. Yeah, no, I, I presume anyone seeing this has seen the whole thing, so we can bounce around as much as as much as we need to to tell the tell the tale. Um, also, I forgot yeah. to mention that the planets uh, might also re relate to planetary overlords because. Um, they're pictured again as I think kind of sentient uh, intelligences, and they're the ones that when they align, they lead mankind to the next uh, phase of evolution. But I think they're supposed to be like advanced AI. I don't think that they're, that's why Jupiter is such a big deal in this, right? Because Jupiter, Jupiter is part a big part of this alignment, um, and the notion of the planetary gods leading man into an ascent towards apotheosis. I mean, that's just kind of like classic, you know esoteric hermetic alchemical philosophy what is the the uh the specific meaning of of jupiter specifically because they do in the, pretty much right after the scene is when they find out the real story that they found this monolith and they go to see the monolith on the moon and it, it emits this sort of this this you know deafening sound um but what they they discover is that it's beaming this sound to Jupiter, which is why we end up later going to the next sort of scene and seeing that whole mission. But why can you dig further into the, you know, specifically Jupiter? What is the significance of that planet? So in a lot of the occult uh, narratives, and I'm speculating here, <clears throat> and this would be an occult narrative that Clark would have known about and probably would have accepted. <clears throat> you have the idea that <clears throat> uh, the God that controls our universe, our universe, uh, is in some way probably Jupiter, right? The king of the planets. And that's a, a just like Saturn or Kronos, it's a, it's a power or a force that uh, limits and controls man. And so Jupiter corresponds to uh, Yah, the Christian God, Yahweh, the Jewish God. <clears throat> and he's a very limited kind of localized God. And so for man to go to the next phase of evolution, he has to break out of the limitations of the localized deities of this universe. And in a lot of the esoteric circles, like in uh, Crowley circles, Crowley, if I recall, talked about how uh, Jupiter represents, uh, you know, the, the imprisoning creator God of the Christian Jewish uh, theology. And the real God of the universe is the unknown, unexpressible beyond being God. So in that way, it's a lot of <clears throat> neoplatonic types of type of, my of mythology. But 
I think that the the signals and the transmissions refer to uh, now it's time for you know uh, a new transmission to to bring man to the next phase. So man's going to sort of begin to break out <clears throat> of the uh, planetary deities that run this dimension or this universe to go to the next phase. And that's why at the end we see that the planetary diamonds align. Those, those are the the planetary uh, what are called celestial intelligences, in my view. Right. Yeah. So I, I think at that at this point when we're we're finding out that they're going to Jupiter and we all we see that again we see the planetary alignment i think it's right before we again see the monolith on the moon so like you said it's again it's signifying a change in the movie we're going to go to a, a sort of a different direction of the movie but it's also signifying that change in mankind or that it's time for this other change in mankind just like we saw in the beginning with the apes standing upright and, and beating each other's yes. senses with bones um, exactly so this does send us along into the, the sort of the somewhat meatier part of the movie it's weird because it's a long movie but every section always like feels small and until I watch it and it's it's twice as long as I thought. Uh, but we we see Henry we meet Henry Bowman, Bowman who basically becomes our our protagonist of sorts here. Uh, again, we see more wheel symbology. He's kind of like running around sort of almost on like a hamster wheel of sorts in, in the uh, in the spaceship. But ultimately what we learn in this in this whole section is that it's there's Bowman, this other scientist and these other ones that are sort of you know, cryogenically frozen or sleeping or whatever technology they use for that along with their other companion named Hal, Hal 9000. So um, as they're kind of you know, transgressing towards Jupiter or beyond Jupiter to, to sort of take this next step of man, they already have a next step in a sense or what is a, a certain kind of technological leap um, with the AI technology. Again, this is another one of those things that hits harder a lot more today than it did even five, ten years ago, um, where we see you know people having little chats with AI that call themselves demons and are are expressing sort of um, uh, not so great intent. Uh, so Hal definitely strikes a little bit more of a chord to me after seeing conversations with like ChatGPT and, and Dan and stuff like that. Um, but maybe you can just take it from wherever you want there, just in terms of what they show us in terms of the uh, the spaceship and also how they introduce Hal. And and, the, and how we're supposed to see this artificial intelligence of how, as it relates to these, these sort of evolution of man that we've been seeing the whole time. All right. So now man is, uh, beyond, he's gone beyond the territorial terrestrial limitations of being confined to the earth, right? He's floating in space and in space, he kind of can float, right? So this is an image of the beginning to the beginning of overcoming the limitations of things like gravity. It's also when things start getting pretty phallic in, in the, uh, in the, Im- yeah, in the imagery point, with the yeah. spaceship. Well, and then yeah, the idea is that the just as man was seated on Earth, man is going to seed the universe, and the birth at the end of Star Child, right, is the production of that seminal seed. Um, let me read just a, a quick few uh, sections in the, where I, where I cover this. The uncapped pyramid, in an alchemical sense, signifies the lack of the completion of the great work. The grand plan is to transmute base matter into gold, which signifies both the inner journey of the psyche and its ascent back to God or the soul back to the one in Neoplatonism, or the after-death journey of the Gnostics through the planetary spheres. In the macro sense, the great work is the transformation of the entire universe into the omega point of Teilhard de Chardin or of uh, Hegel, where the totality of reality becomes conscious of itself as conscious, and inanimate matter becomes merged into psyche. Realizing its own inert potentiality and God in process, right? So this is where we get to uh, Star Child. The universe has within it the ability to produce. And so Halman will be one of these figures 
one of these how is the figure that will that's an emergent Deus Ex Machina from within the God from within that will eventually in three thousand one unite with <clears throat> how to become the new deity Halman. With the apes, <clears throat> early man was limited, caged, and bound by the forces of nature, time, and space. In space age, man has overcome gravity, floating about the universe, no longer him, uh, hindered by the limitations of hunger, resources, and mass. This is the middle stage of man's gradual ascent out of the cage of the box of time and space, which is precisely what the monolith signifies in part. This is why the monolith becomes a kind of coffin box for Bowman in the climax. For Kubrick, the evolutionary ascent is premised on the presupposition of perpetual progress through technology, overcoming limitations of uh, space and body. Hunger, by the time we're in space, is gone. Gravity is gone. And through the cryogenic sleep, sleep pods, time is beginning to be mastered. That was my take on that. And I think it's pretty interesting, too, that when when we're out in space, they really, and we're, when we're first meeting Hal, at least to me, they, they really do seem to present Hal from the very beginning, really, as having a personality. Um, there's that scene where he kind of talks about how he was born or first created, I guess, in 1992. And he has the, the, that song, Daisy, that Daisy song that gets a lot, yeah. it's a lot weirder <laughs> and creepier when he, when he sings it later on. But uh, do you think that they made it sort of an, an intentional uh, decision to to make Hal almost uh, he's, he's almost likable in a way, just the way he's he's sort of is able to use sarcasm and and even even when he's gone bad and is and is sort of turned on the crew. Um, I can't help but get a kick out of Hal pretty much the whole time till till his very end. So I'm just just curious on your overall uh, thoughts on on the presentation of Hal. Yeah, I think there's this idea that humanity is uh, evolving to become more robotic in this narrative. And the robot is evolving to become more and more human. And that's going to lead to that emergence, right? Or that merging at the end. Um, Hal is funny because, yeah, he, he has this this character that you're mentioning, but he also speaks of himself as perfect because he's free from all human error. Um, and that's going to be the challenge, right, between the next phase of human evolution as to who's going to win in this Darwinian survival of the fittest uh, battle between Hal or Bowman. Um, and I think that uh, the solution ultimately here is that they're going to have to, it's almost like a, a Gnostic merging like of two, two principles, the male principle, the feminine principle. I mean, Hal's not feminine, but he's, he might represent uh, the two elements that are needed for the synthesis because a lot of this relates to alchemy. Uh, even Hegelianism is very premised on uh, alchemy. So you have thesis, you have antithesis, and then you have the synthesis of the two. And so here you have man, you have the robot, the AI, and then they, they eventually merge to, uh, to be that synthesis. Um, I'm trying to remember what all I went to in my analysis. I got into a bunch of DARPA stuff and the history of AI. Um, and I, yeah, I think you're, you're right to point that point out that this movie is really prescient for right now because we have the emerging of AI uh, in my view, I don't really think it's as advanced as they're saying it is, just my opinion. It seems to be, I mean, maybe they have a secret version of it that's really advanced, but like the stuff that's out there, chat GPT is kind of ridiculous. This doesn't seem to be that. It seems to spit out basically what Google spits out when I search Google. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what to say about that other than that. It's kind of like deus ex machina again, that the, the deity of this universe emerges from within the universe and then can start new universes. So, and by the way, if you if you've watched if you haven't watched 2010 in a long time, I highly recommend watching that one because there's a lot of really deep esoteric Luciferian elements in 2010 that, that are really clear at the end of the movie, and it's it, it's actually about the dialectic of the Cold War, 
and how out of the Cold War we're going to get this new uh, synthesis between capitalism and communism, right? That uh, produces the the technocratic era of space travel and seeding the other planets. It's funny because I had never actually seen, I'd read all the books way back in the day, but I'd never actually seen 2010. And last night it popped up and, and after I watched the movie and I was about to go press it, but then I was like $3 and I was like, nah, I don't know if I want to play $3. But that's before I knew it was good. So if it's actually good, I, I will well, pay the $3. Maybe. I would, I would, it's boring. I wouldn't say it's okay. a good movie. It's certainly not as good. As, <laughs> Worth watching for analysis good. purposes might not be the same as good yeah, movie. For analysis, it's really perfect at the end. And a lot of the stuff that, um, because when I wrote this analysis, I had not, I back when I wrote this, I I didn't watch 2010 yet. I mean, I'd seen it maybe back in high school. I didn't remember. I thought it was really boring. I went to sleep. Um, and then when I wrote this analysis of 2001, I had not yet rewatched 2010. Jamie and I rewatched it, I think, last year, and we did a podcast on it <clears throat> in our Alien series. And uh, I was blown away. Like, this is like, this is really really like really relevant and and, and i've not read the second book so i don't know how close it follows that book but it's you should definitely watch it for analysis that that might be one for when the wife isn't isn't around and i can i don't have to bore her with it um but back into uh back into like the the confrontation with Hal because basically bowman i forget i forget the other astronaut's name but he starts to get the sense that that something's up with Hal, that uh, maybe his programming's off or, or something like that. And they have a sort of a secret meeting because Hal has ears everywhere, except in these this certain pod they go into, which, which comes back a little bit later. But they kind of go in and, and we, we kind of see it from Hal's perspective, which I think is a really cool just in, in the filmmaking sense. We see them in there sort of talking and we, we both see them, you know, we hear the words, but there's also a part where we can kind of just see what Hal, what we f- later find out that Hal sees that uh, in the, the sort of big reveal, which is like, one of my favorite parts of the movie when, um, well, we'll just kind of skip to it, but where Bo- Bowman, um, Hal basically kills Bowman's, uh, Bowman's partner as well as everyone else on board. So it's, it's basically just down to, down to, uh, uh, Bowman and he's talking to Hal and he's saying, and Hal's like, uh, I, I kind of have a feeling you're going to shut me down. And Bowman's just like, what do you mean? Why, what are you talking about, Hal? And Hal's like, Dude, I can read lips pretty much, and that's what you see. This look, I, the look on Bowman's face when he finds that out is just like, it's like getting caught texting the wrong girl or something. He just like he knows he's stunned, but it's it's another one of those things. When I watch the movie back, it they stay on him to hit the shot of him for like two minutes, where he, as he just processes how fucked he is that Hal has not only killed his crewmates but knows that he wants to shut him down. Um, but um yeah, but luckily uh you know Bowman is uh is pretty smart and, and Hal and so he quickly figures out well I'll just go in the escape hatch and what I really love about the scene as he's slowly going through these and Hal's like you, you don't have a helmet you can't do that he he eventually is able to get in there and then through a whole a whole scene that's worth watching him getting him back into the spaceship but I, I think one of my favorite parts here of the movie going in is is once Bowman is back in in the ship and you know even though Hal has arms and eyes and and all that stuff and that doesn't have doesn't have arm has eyes and ears he doesn't have arms or anything like that he can't he can't touch uh bowman so once bowman's back in the ship hal is pretty much fucked at that point and this is when hal goes from sort of perfect computer mode to he starts to sort of like whine and rationalize it's i i, I thought of it like a, a couple who had just gotten into a fight and then he starts to kind of say like hold on i know i got a little crazy out there before but I'm better now. He starts saying I'm better now. And I laughed out loud when he even suggests to uh, Bowman, he says, why don't you just take a stress pill <laughs> and, and calm down there? Um, I don't really have a question here, but I just, I just wanted to get your own, your own thoughts on, on that whole interaction um, between Bowman 
and Hal as uh, Bowman is preparing to to uh, to send Hal to uh, you know on yeah, his way. This is like <clears throat> a, a uh, re- referring back to the battle between the two monkeys at the beginning, right? So now we have two new versions of monkeys, and Hal's not a monkey, but he like he's a monkey compared to where uh, the the deity of this universe is at the end. And there's a great quote. By Clark, um, Clark was reported to have said, quote, it may be that our role on the planet of Earth is to not worship God, but to create God. And this is in reference to a story he wrote called The Final Query. Um, the uh, screenplay writer, uh, <clears throat> Clark, the co-writer, uh, allowed significant changes to the script by Kubrick with, for example, the TV screen monolith. Another significant change is the ending where Starchild uses uh, the satellite system to blow up the planet. And so man, we find out, is an evolutionary error or an abortion that's not supposed to be. We find this, by the way, in a lot of science fiction where the uh, accidental or uh, just sort of random emergence of man is a is a mistake that needs to be corrected. And, and man is an abortion. In fact, if you watch the Alien series, that's actually really prevalent in the, uh, the Alien um I'm talking about really Scott alien mythos. Like man is this, is this accidental uh, genetic modification creation from the, you know, experiments of the uh, uh, space jockeys or whatever. And so that's, that, we find this a lot in science fiction and that's why. And the alien is kind of like almost like the, the dream virus of the elite that is just there to just wipe exactly. out the error. Yeah. It's, it's like the ultimate depot weapon. Exactly. So, so here we think, Oh, actually maybe Hal's going to do that. Right. Because, the next phase is going to be as they're in this ship and they've been shot out like seminal emission right into the universe, literally, right? It's supposed to, I think it's supposed to mean that. And so we have this sort of survival of fittest battle within the, the sperm <laughs> to, to see who's going to win. Um, and <clears throat> we think that it's going to be how it's going to depopulate uh, Bowman and then how will, you know, I guess go into the beyond through the, the Stargate or whatever, and he'll become the new God or something like that. But uh, it's, it's not going to go in that direction. Um, yeah, that's all I can remember about that part. Well, I'm curious what you think about, because something I always thought to myself and then watch, but watching back, it, it kind of sends mixed messages almost with Hal. I, I wonder, do you think that there is, because Hal, they, they say Hal was born or created in 1992. So the technology for Hal has been around this whole time. And this entire time, Hal's never, I, I presume, ever killed anybody or turned on a crew or anything like that. So it seems like he's been around for almost 30 years here. Um, so I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about whether the emergence of the monolith at this time has anything to do with sort of Hal's change in consciousness. consciousness. If, if that sort of upgraded Hal, that's what I think on one side. But then on the other side, yeah, I think you see right. Hal get defeated. Yeah. So it, it Kind of like I kind of go both ways on that. Yeah, because 2001 is supposed to be the well, Hal isn't actually defeated. That's well, the thing. Yeah, right? in, the, um, in, so, in the moment it seems so. I guess I guess I, in yeah. the moment, right? Exactly. So uh if yeah, so if it's 1992, then uh you know they probably guesstimated that it would take 10 years for the AI to develop <clears throat> to be you know that uh advanced. Of course, it wasn't that advanced in 2001. Right. That we know of, right? Unless we live in some sort of, uh, I don't know, AI created simulation universe that 
maybe in 2001, uh, right? Maybe Y2K really was the end of the universe, and we're all actually in. <laughs> We've like, been in a, a, a Victorian, a Victorian era era bedroom since then. Some <laughs> yeah, right. I wonder if the de- the defeat of Hal. It almost se- it almost seems like an uplifting thing. It, the defeat of Hal at first, where he just Bowman just goes in and sort of like slowly removes the heart, which is probably my favorite scene in the movie. Besides the next scene that we'll get into, but but uh, where as Hal is as he's talking as Hal is talking to him, he's pulling out the hard drives. Hal's voice is getting slower and more and more, yeah. and, and then he sings that. I think that's my fa- one of my favorite lines in the movie when he's singing that Daisy song and he just says his voice gets more and more like this. Um, <laughs> but it does seem like for the moment anyway that man has has triumphed over ai so for a brief period which doesn't last too long it almost seems like in some way man is superior to machine or man has outsmarted machine or could maybe could maybe actually last longer than than the machine hal can yeah i think it's a question of dominance is it is it going to be a future dominated by tech and ai or is it a future that's going to be dominated by man achieving and controlling the tech right because god God in this world is the tech, the AI that's created by man, like Clark said. <clears throat> and um, in this alchemical trans- self-transformational narrative here, by the time we get to this key point, now we're at the next the next juncture, right? That's why it was so important that we see the next... We, we skip from the monkeys to here because this is the next leap. Like, are we going to go into, again, an AI-dominated future or... And that's a, or a man dominate you that and that's in a lot of uh, sci-fi too even from this time um in the dune narrative right mm-hmm. like in dune you have the butlerian jihad which banned the the, the banned ai right. because when a <clears throat> in dune when ai got loose it enslaved mankind mm-hmm. they had to have this war against the ai and then, and then it's banned in the future right so um yeah there's a prevalent sort of narrative i think at the in the sci-fi of the 60s and 70s 50s 60s 70s so um, and, and in ways, I guess it was, it was prescient because here we are. And I don't know, I don't believe that AI is like, you know, going to be God or it can come alive or become conscious. Cause I don't believe that that even makes any sense. Cause I mean, no matter how many additions to an algorithm that you put in there to make it more complex, it's still an algorithm. It's not conscious. Uh, there's a really good essay that covers this. It's that critiqued it a long time, a long time ago called, uh, um, minds, machines and Gerdell. <clears throat> It's an essay that you could read at at Oxford. It's just a philosophical critique of the poss- uh, the impossibility of AI becoming conscious or self aware. Uh, it's a philosophical argument, which I think is pretty good. So, but I do think it's possible that you know this sort of merging that we see in this story and later on in the trilogy is is very possible that man can you know extend his life and you can have these sort of cyborg Android type situations. I mean, that's pretty much always already here. Right. Yeah. So that I think is possible, but uh, I don't think that it's like a data sex machina. All right. Well, this is where this is kind of the point where the movie goes from. If you were just watching it for the first time, it, it almost could just be sort of any, any standard fare sci-fi sort of film, you know, people in space fighting robots or what have you. And then things go completely, completely off the wall. So uh, right after Bowman defeats Hal, he finds the transmission that was designed not to, to aw- make them aware of the real mission. Um, once, once they kind of arrived. So they, they're they're They defeat Hal right as he's getting to Jupiter and like Phobos and all the, the moons of Jupiter planets. And the message this is another point where I laughed. We're watching it too. The message 
just like, well, now that you're here with your whole crew and Hal, we can tell you the real thing. And he's just like, you just, again, they just cut to Bowman that just looks like, what the fuck am I doing all the way out here with this shit? Oh, so it was like a secret space. Program, yeah, it was right? like they didn't they knew they were out there. They didn't I don't know what they didn't really say what the cover story was, but apparently the crew didn't know any of the real reason that they were out there. And that's the scene where the video, the guy on, on from that we saw earlier explains about the monolith, explain like Bowman didn't know any of this shit uh, before that scene, which I, I found pretty interesting, too, especially because his reaction is. Well, his, his first reaction is, is it's almost like simultaneous with the the viewer of the film. And this is where it's like, OK, kind of what you said earlier about does the monolith almost represent the movie? Because right at this moment is when the monolith appears again. And this is where things get get super trippy. Um, and, and Bowman sees the monolith, I guess. He's like kind of like looking out of the spaceship. The viewer sees the monolith. So we, it kind of seems like we're seeing it through, through Bowman's point of view. But the monolith also takes these sort of different shapes that at times it feels like the monolith is sort of in, enveloping the viewer, enveloping um, you know us. So in, in some ways that does play yeah. to the fact that it is representing the movie itself because it is it's sort of like sometimes you just, especially if you have enough big enough uh, screen, you, you might actually feel like you're inside the movie at some point. So, um, but Bowman, I guess they don't really explain anything about what Bowman is doing. I don't think he speaks another word the rest of the movie, actually. Um, he just sort of looks as we're looking at the visual effects, at the awe of everything. And then this is when it's not clear to me if the monolith is just guiding him or if he even like goes inside the monolith. But basically he ends up going through uh, what can only be described as like a, a vortex. Yeah, he's going and, and it's even clearer in the, in the next, the next in 2010. There's a, it's, he's going into the monolith because, uh, he will in the next one too. Yeah. So the monolith basically sends him down this, this crazy vortex. And just, just with pretty much every other scene in this movie, I remember it as two minutes and it's like 20, it's like, it's like 20 minutes of him seeing various, uh, shit, like perfect geometry, uh, various colors. Those who have partaken in certain psychedelics might see a lot of it as familiar. Um, uh, it's really just visually stunning. I think this is the, and this is the part of the movie where I think uh, when I was younger, I just sort of turned my brain off and said, well, this part's just supposed to look cool. This part is just, yeah, this is where I don't I know what the too, fuck's yeah. going on. So I'm not going to be exactly yeah. like, Whoa, man. So let's grab another bong hit and just enjoy this. But, um, you know, as we know with Kubrick's filmmaking in general and with this film being no exception, nothing is by accident. Nothing is by chance. Yes, it does look cool, but there's meaning behind it all. So I'll let you pick up wherever you like. Just what is your interpretation of this entire like it's literally like a 20, 25 minute sequence of him going through not just these like visuals of the lights. And but also there's there's you know, there's there's a lot in there. There's the up close of his eyes being illuminated. Uh, and eventually, once he gets through the vortex, as you mentioned earlier, um, if you can call it being through, um, he sees these sort of like landscapes. It almost looks like is he on another planet or is he seeing the formation of of Earth? It's time has now become confusing yeah. as well. Um, right. But eventually, like at the end there, he does also see those those seven sort of it's like perfect sort of triangles or pyramids or diamonds or whatever the kind of kind of appear. Yeah, they're platonic right. solids. So there's, I think they're supposed to represent the planetary uh, deities, right? Because in the classical world, you have seven planetary deities. Um, so Kubrick said, quote, I will say that the God concept is definitely at the heart of 2001. However, it's not any traditional anthropomorphic uh, notion of god i don't believe in any of earth's monotheistic religions but i do believe that you can construct an intriguing scientific definition of god once you accept the fact that there's 100 billion stars in our galaxy <clears throat> in our galaxy and each star has uh, life-giving potential and 100 billion galaxies blah blah, blah. the planet is <clears throat> in a stable orbit not too hot not too cold and given a billion years of chance the chemical reactions 
due to the sun's energy rays can uh, produce a chance for life to emerge. It is reasonable then to assume that there must be countless of billions of, uh, of worlds and that life probably developed on developed on other planets and that their intelligence was uh, high eventually. So he says that that would have led to, you know, it's kind of the typical sort of alien, the logic of the alien story that, oh, well, there would be these uh, advanced evolutionary beings on other planets because of the billions of years of time in the, in the universe. He says their potentialities would be limitless. Their uh, intelligence would, would, be, would be ungraspable by, <clears throat> by humans. And he says that they would have been beings who, uh, like a chrysalis, transformed from matter into beings of pure energy and spirit. So that's Gnostic, that's Hegelianism, that's Tehar, that's everything that I was getting at. And so um, what we have here is this, as we said a minute ago, this challenge between Hal and Bowman. Hal ends up not winning out, but Bowman goes into the uh, the Stargate, the monolith Stargate, which in my view, he's stepping outside of time and space. So he's again, finally getting to the phase of transcending those previous limitations that we mentioned. And by going beyond Jupiter, he's going beyond, uh, as we said, the limiting deity of, of, of this universe or celestial intelligence of this universe. And now he can see, like you said, like he's seeing the formation of this universe. He's seeing outside of time and space. He's seeing, in fact, in my view, the even the fundamental structure of the universe, that it has these sort of uh, fundamental structures, platonic solids, which, like we read in Plato's Timaeus. That's kind of the ultimate cosmology of all the hermetic and occult religions is Plato's Timaeus, <clears throat> which it, it itself says goes back to ancient Egypt. So um, it's kind of supposed to represent like the, the building blocks of reality or like, you know, the, the code of the matrix, wherever you want to, however you want to say it. In my view, yeah, I, I kind of think it's a matrixy mm -hmm. type of thing here. Right. So that, that Bowman is saying that this is how the universe, he can see the smallest level of how the universe is structured. He can see it on a mac macro scale. He can see the beginning of it. He can see the end of it. So he's outside of time and space and he can, you know, has a maybe a limited notion of omniscience, <laughs> I guess. It's like he's the human and you, you kind of see this on the look on his face when he's in the room later. Like he has this huge amount of sort of ability to see things and understanding, but also is still this human mind that can't comprehend anything. Yeah. So uh, I wrote the transcendent sequence harkens to some kind of LSD trip or initiates a kind of initiation. And I think the viewer is supposed to be uh, initiated, too. So the, the movie experience is an initiatory right or it's and Kubrick does this all the time that's why he called the movie eyes wide shut right he's like you're in the audience i'm going to show you how the world really works with like you know these powerful cults that run things and <clears throat> you're not going to understand it your your eyes are going to remain shut you're going to think it's a movie when it's actually how the world really works and so i wrote bowman's mind is overloaded with illumination and it signifies the reaching <clears throat> his reaching of the eye so the reason that the eye imagery at the at the end is so important is that the capstone had been uncapped and now bowman is the eye of the capstone in my view so that means that he's achieved <clears throat> apotheosis he's become a god man and that's what star child is right star child is uh, the ultimate apotheosis of man the god man that emerges from the universe but it did take uh it did take the aid of how to do it ironically how was part of that dialectical process and later on how will be actually um integral to he it, the being becomes halman so hal and bowman merge to become halman and he has this like chariot 
thing that he that he runs around and rolls rules the universe. That's all on the on the, on the books, right? Yeah, because in, yeah, in the, the film, book, it's unclear but, that there's any connection to Hal anymore at this point. But yeah, in the book, that right. becomes much more of a thing. Yeah, so I just think that uh, it's basically showing the initiatory journey of an individual uh, in the alchemical worldview to understand the possible future of mankind from this esoteric perspective uh, to how man would kind of become become his own god. Yeah, and if that if that whole vortex and everything wasn't wasn't trippy enough, uh, this sort of pretty much final scene uh, that we'll go into here is when Bowman suddenly finds himself after going through this whole thing, seeing the, the birth of the universe, seeing the, you know the seven uh, the seven diamonds, the all of that stuff. Uh, he is suddenly just in sort of a room um, or his space pod is in this room. So it's like, this was physically being guided through and then just kind of plopped in this place that seems to have been, I guess, created for him in some way, shape or form, uh, or maybe created by himself in his mind, depending on how you want to interpret things. Um, but He's in this sort of weird Victorian era, sort of like fancy, fancy bedroom. And this is where it's, again, it gets pretty, pretty, pretty trippy, you might say, because you're seeing this through Bowman's point of view at first, and you're seeing him look out. Um, again, this is a kind of a theme with Kubrick's movies, like, like you mentioned there, where you're almost supposed to be part of the movie in a sense. So it kind of feels like that when, when you're, you're seeing as Bowman from outside of his little space capsule, seeing into the room and then he sees himself, he sees himself in the space, in, in the space suit. And then suddenly he goes from seeing himself to being himself. Now he is this older version of himself in the space suit, walking around, uh, this, this sort of weird Victorian castle or whatever it might be until he comes upon a room where he hears someone and sees someone eating. This person turns around just kind of, and then once again, he goes from seeing that person, which is just himself into being that person. So then he becomes the, the the Henry Bowman that was sitting there eating, drops this glass and then looks over at the final absolute creepiest version of himself. This version that is this pruned and like gross and just like, it looks like if a human could become 2000 years old, this is what a human a 2000 years old would look like. Um, as he again, sees himself then becomes himself in the bed right before we see the monolith one final time. And um, well, we'll get to star child one more time at the end, but why don't you just give me just your thoughts on, on this whole thing where Bowman is, do you have any thoughts on why they chose this, this sort of decor? First of all, that, that part's always perplexed me. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I remember reading somewhere why he did that. And I, I don't remember what his reasoning was, but I, if I recall, he just, he said something innocuous, like he just thought it looked cool. I don't remember what exactly, but there's probably more to it than that. Maybe he was just joking around. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this seems to be a kind of a temporary, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what word to like, maybe <clears throat> catabasis like so in a lot of literature you have this notion of uh the hero has to do his descent into the underworld before he can be resurrected or before he can come back and the underworld journey is part of the it's like the last phase of of his event of the hero's adventure and then he comes back and he you know saves his bride or he you know beats the monster or whatever so I think that or it's the same as Christ's descent into Hades in Christian theology. So Bowman is kind of like he's undergoing his catabasis. He's gone into outside of the universe. And then this is a kind of um, again, it's not hell, but it's like a kind of a purgatorial temporary holding place so that he can <clears throat> see his, his own self, his own life, his own progression from youth to, to death so that he can undergo death to be reborn. 
So I think this is just his uh, death. He needs to see and undergo death, but he's in a place where he's outside of time and space. So it's kind of like he's reliving and seeing his whole life is flashing before him again. I don't know why it's in a museum, but, but maybe it's just like, this is the museum of, you know, the history of man as hitherto known to be man. Now man is going to be something new. He's, he's becoming a whole new thing. And that's the apotheosis. That's the, the birth into being the next, the God man. So um, that's my reading of that. I'm sure there's more to it. I just haven't really figured out all the, exactly what the whole Victorian or it's actually, I think he says a Louis, Louis the 16th, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, palace or whatever. I'm not exactly sure what the meaning of all that is, but I do know that it's like <clears throat> the last thing that he has to overcome is death. Right. So you have the limitations of time and space and all that kind of stuff previously that we mentioned. And now in this ascent, he's got one last thing to overcome, which is mortality. So I think that's the main significance of it is overcoming mortality through being born again as Starjall. Which he is. Yeah. So he goes from that creepy old, uh, you know, disgusting 2000 year old man to a fetus upon, upon the, uh, the appearance of the monolith. Uh, we then, we get, of course, we close up with another appearance from uh, the great Thus Spake Zarathustra music that we're all familiar with as we see this new, super creepy looking baby Henry Bowman star child appear uh, over the earth. And so he basically looks like a baby, but also looks like Henry Bowman as a baby. So it's it's a, it's super weird, super creepy. And then that that is the movie. So um, you've referenced it a few times. Uh, maybe you can just sum it up with, you know, what, why, why is Henry Bowman? I mean, now we know it's the star child and the significance, but I mean, this is the one where as a kid, I would just be like, or not even a kid. I mean, just a few years ago, I would just kind of throw my hands up in the air and be like, all right, this movie means nothing. They just want, they just made him a baby, but there, there is more significance to it than that. Yeah. A lot of the uh, people from the alchemical hermetic tradition and people even in transhumanist philosophy today believe that evolution is this uh, upward ascent somehow sort of a predetermined upward, upward ascent to <clears throat> perpetual progress to achieving deity. So man will evolve uh, to become God. And the reasoning is, well, the, what's the most likely uh, means by which he would evolve to become God? Well, it would be technology. So <clears throat> that's, I think, ultimately the root narrative throughout the Clark uh, stories here. That's what's going on. Um, and like I said, there was supposed to be a, uh, the idea that Starchild would nuke Earth and start over. But uh, they decided that was a little too dark, so they didn't <laughs> put that in there, if I remember. <laughs> so they just left it as Starchild, basically kind of like creating another universe. So we're back at Genesis. And since Bowman has transcended and become his own God, he can now create his own universe. He's the God of his own universe. And so that's the, the whole meaning of, you know, the alchemical process, the ascent of man, ap apotheosis means man becoming God. So that's what I think. That's so, so at least as far as the movie goes, I mean, the, the books and the sequels, and the movies go in other directions or what have you. But as far as the movie goes, that's what always confused me. Like, is this Bowman just returning to Earth to do whatever? Or is this a cycle? Or is it almost like this might be back at Genesis? I think it's a cycle. Yeah. And now, now maybe Bowman. So it's like a new universe, Bowman right? yeah. through the Well, as we know in the books, like when he sort of merges with Hal he is the one responsible for almost like interstellar where the ones that are guiding this whole thing are actually yeah, the ones exactly. are what make humans becomes the one that started. And then we're sort of stuck in this, in this never ending cycle. Exactly. Yeah. And that would make sense in the Nietzschean view that it's an eternal return. Thus spake Zarathustra, right? The, 
the, the that notion of a sort of a never-ending cyclical universe where it now uh, the process starts over again and we're back at Genesis and creation, which not Genesis in the biblical sense, but the idea of Genesis in a you know big bang cosmic beginning of right. the universe. Definitely not in the biblical sense at, at all. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, one more question I want to, and then we'll uh, we'll hop over to the smokeful room and see if we can get a little bit weirder. But uh, I'm just curious where you put this personally in uh, if you have a, a head sort of a head canon ranking uh, of Kubrick films. Uh, where where would you land this one in terms of your personal favorites? Anyway. My personal, uh, I like <clears throat> probably Eyes Wide Shut is probably my favorite, um, just because it's a little more ground, grounded and down to earth when it comes to the the reality, of the conspiracy world. That's one that's moved up my rankings. I think when I first saw it, I was like, I don't know, it was there were some cool orgies, I guess, but I'm not sure. But now, like the more I watch it, it just it ages like a like a fine wine. It gets better every time I see it. Yeah, um, probably next would be The Shining. Uh, I like that a lot. Um, probably next would be. Um, I mean, I appreciate Barry Lyndon, but it's kind of boring. Um, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Lolita, although it is relevant to, I guess, how the world really works. Um, Spartacus. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would put uh, 2001 maybe in terms of just appreciating the accomplishment and the artistic achievement and the you know significance of it. Even though I don't agree with the worldview, I would probably place it fourth. Fourth, okay. So what would you have above it? Eyes Wide Shut, Shining, and... Um was was the other one that you have you, you would have above it? I forgot what I put third. Maybe I'll put third. And then it's not better than Barry Lyndon. So maybe Barry Lyndon four. All right. All right. Well, Jay, I really appreciate you coming on uh, to break this down. Like I said, we're gonna hop into the smoke filled room uh, for the premium premio subs in a second. But uh before we sign off, just make sure you give everybody the full roundabout about where they can find your work uh, all over the place, your website, YouTube, you're everywhere. Yeah, Jay Dyer on YouTube. Um uh, Pretty much everywhere else, Jay Dyer on uh, Twitter, um, Instagram. Uh, you can find my fourth hour uh, at my website. All of the last two years, it's, it's everything's on my website, but you can also find all that on uh, Bandai Video. Um, TV show that we did, uh, which is more relevant to, to today's analysis, uh, was over at Gaia. It's called Hollywood Decoded. So there's a whole season of that TV show where we did basically twenty ish episodes like we did today breaking down um all these different films including 2001 and other uh Kubrick films too we did the shining we did eyes wide shut uh so that's all over there and uh yeah i have a bunch of books so if you like this kind of analysis you can get my two hollywood books but i also have a bunch of books on uh, philosophy and theology at the website too my wife has books kind of breaking down film symbolism and, and occult symbolism as well and all that's at my website in the shop also on Rockman, on Rockman too you can give yourself uh, your own sort of masterclass in, I mean, you could spend years just, just devouring Jay's material. So check that all out. And uh, oh, Jay, thank you so much. I also have a philosophy course. Oh yeah, yeah. Go quick. ahead. I forgot. Yeah. Uh, over at uh, Richard Groves Autonomy University, uh, we just taught a whole history of Western philosophy course. So that's available over at Autonomy University. Awesome. Kick ass. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate you coming on my show. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my breakdown, really Jay's breakdown, our breakdown of 2001 Space Odyssey with Jay Dyer. Be sure to follow his work. Uh, if if it's been created, there's a decent chance that Jay has done an esoteric analysis and breakdown of it. So he's just a vast source of uh, information and knowledge and not just on this subject. I mean, if you're uh, if you're becoming an ortho bro or something, he, he has so much stuff on theology, uh, so much stuff on global politics, conspiracy 
see. I mean, Jay just has an incredibly vast depth of knowledge at his disposal. So I really want to encourage you to head over, check out jaysanalysis.com and give Jay a like, a sub, a follow, whatever you got to do. Just go ahead and do it. And of course, if you enjoy my conversation with Jay today, you probably will enjoy the rest of it because this conversation, as always, continued in the smoke-filled room bonus segment for my premium subscribers on Patreon, on Rockfin, on Subscribestar. However you subscribe, you get the complete and early access to every single episode of this program. Every single episode you hear on the public feed is only scratching the surface. We always go deeper in the smoke-filled room. In this one, we got Jay's thoughts on whether Stanley Kubrick was involved with the moon landing footage, which has been rumored, of course. Uh, He also gets into his thoughts on things like the Mandela effect and the flat earth. What does Jay Dyer think of flat earth? We're going to find out in the smoke-filled room. If you haven't, hey, you can get yourself a free trial, you know. Subscribe star. Go click the subscribe star link. Just go to Mark Claire again, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Try Subscribestar if you just want a free trial. You can get a five-day, a five-day, seven-day, whatever. It's a free trial. Check it out. Dive through the archive. You can do it all probably in in a few days. You can't go to work. You want to have time for anything else, your family, eating, loved ones. But you can get through the whole archive uh, in a few days. And if you like what you hear, you like what you see, you want to support the show, I'm happy to have you. So head over to markclare.com for all the options of how you can subscribe to and support this program. Be sure to join the Telegram group. We're having a good time in the Telegram group, getting some conversation. That one is free. You don't have to be a paid subscriber for that. Uh, also linked over there at the link tree at markclare.com. That being said, that is all for this week, my friends. Next week, we're going to have another great conversation. If you thought this was weird, well, we talked about some some fictional aliens today. Well, today, next week, we're going to be talking about um, some possible non-fictional aliens the current hoopla around ufos what is going on here we're going to be talking about that with my guest griffin daughtry next week until then my friends in case i don't see you good afternoon good evening and good night (laughs) 